could, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 15, where we will be today. John chapter 15. So last week, at the end of our morning service, we had three baptisms, and we had two children and an adult share their salvation testimonies, how God saved them. And they got baptized, we clapped, and we were happy. That's good. Uh, in our life group, the last several weeks, the college and career life group, we've had several share their salvation testimonies, how they came to know Christ. And after each one, just we're happy. We are thankful. Wow, look at what God has done. Maybe you've been able to enjoy that too, either in your life groups or perhaps Bible studies. So when we've been studying John 15, Pastor Steve has been working through this section you know, that happiness, that joy, that makes sense, especially from the believing community, right? Because we're commanded in verse 17, what? Love one another. So in the context of the believing community, it shouldn't be terribly surprising when someone says, I'm a Christian, here's how God saved me, and we are, yes! We love that, we clap for it. But what John, and in his writing here in this chapter, and really through the teaching of Jesus, what he's doing in this next section is preparing for something that maybe Christians don't expect. Like if you were to say, okay, when you become a Christian, here's what you should expect. I don't know if that was told to you. You know Christ. Here's what you should expect when you become a Christian. In verses 18 and following, we're going to be reading some things that maybe you weren't told when you first became a Christian. Or there may be people here that aren't Christians. Maybe you're here and you genuinely are learning about what the Bible says and who Jesus is. You're like, what is this all about? And I guess, and I don't mean to be crass when I say this, if I were giving a sales pitch for you to become a Christian, this would probably not be the first thing that in my flesh I would want to tell you. But this is something that Jesus very much wants his disciples to know. So in verse 18, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world will love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all of these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. When the helper comes, I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. We're going to keep going into chapter 16. These things I've spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering a service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, 
you may remember that I told you of them. We're going to stop right here. Next week, we're going to pick up there in the middle of verse 4. But the flow of thought really kind of ends there and continues a little bit differently. Uh, middle of verse 4. We'll, we'll, we'll continue there. But before we go any further, let's pray. Ask God to give clarity and skill and application as we look at his word. Father, we pray for just that. Clarity and understanding your word. And that not just understanding it, that we may welcome it. That we may welcome not only it in our minds, but in particular, our actions. Father, as we look at a passage of scripture that um, probably isn't something that we, we herald as good news. Lord, it's true. And so as we endeavor to live lives that are worthy of what we've been called, Father, may we do it in such a way so that you get the glory and so that we, Lord, um, might become more like your son, Jesus. May your spirit uh, take his word, take your word, implant it in our hearts. Lord, clearly Christ is desiring to prepare his disciples when he gives these words. So may we, going from here, be prepared as well. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So again, John 15, verse 17. This I command you, love one another. There's a response that we should enjoy in the body of Christ. But opposition, sometimes hatred even, from the unbelieving world. This may not be what we expect. But Jesus clearly indicates that it will come. Now, depending on you and where your faith journey, if I can put it that way, like I, I, we have lots of context here, lots of stories. How you came to Christ or what you know of Christ when you became a Christian there might be different ways of responding to this passage. For example, some of you may respond when you read, if the world hates you, you know that it's hated me. And then when you read in uh, verse 20, if they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. Some of you may hear that and say, you bet it does. You bet the world will hate us. And this may come really from your own personal experience. You've witnessed it firsthand. You've experienced it firsthand. Or perhaps those close to you have experienced this firsthand. Or perhaps if you're a student of church history, you know anything, uh, or you've learned about the church in the past, you know the number of saints that have laid down their lives for Jesus Christ. What their faith in Jesus Christ cost to them. Even to the extent of some of the missionaries that we support. Where we can't even use their first and last names in their photographs on the screen when we pray for them or in the little prayer journal simply because they live in an area where if that information comes out that they are a missionary, it may cost them financially, may cost them their freedom, depending on the circumstances, may even cost them their lives. So for some, if the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. Yes, you bet it does. I know that. For others, you may not respond that way. And maybe I'm an outlier here. But when I read this passage, there's part of me that wonders, really? Here's why I say that. So, I was born into a family where my parents were saved before I was born. So all I have known from a domestic standpoint was, was Christianity. I mean, it was not just something we believe. This was something like inculcated in really all parts of my life from day one. I mean, from day one. My mom opened the Bible. I have vivid memories of her waking up Waking up in the morning and, and seeing my mom have her devotions. Like hearing her pray for me when I was a kid. Uh, my dad being used in the church. This is, the church is what I knew. It's what I've known. 
Not only that, the decision was made for me where I get my education. I, I was in Christian education from kindergarten all the way up through the 12th grade. Meaning every day of my education had some level of Bible instruction to it. Okay. And then when I went and I got my college education, that was also in Christian education. Where almost every day I was at a chapel service. The, the student bodies that I was familiar with, they all pretty much professed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Amen. That's what I knew. Then when I graduated, I became a teacher. My undergrad wasn't, I, I didn't train to be a pastor. I actually trained to be a, a science teacher. And so I got my degree. I went and taught in a Christian environment where my colleagues were all professing Christ. My students, most of which profess Christ. Then, after that, the Lord was super, you know, kind of superintended my path to include coming and being vocationally in ministry. Where in 2009, I, I came here on staff. My colleagues are Christians here. I don't know if you knew that or not. <laughs> but then I went and got seminary work. And I was in seminary for eight years. And my colleague, my, my, my fellow students, we talked about the Bible. Okay? My lifetime has been saturated within, if I could put it this way, cultural Christianity. Like, I, I say cultural Christianity not because, like, the American culture, but my culture. So, I know that's not everybody's experience here. And again, I want to qualify that by saying I might be an outlier. There were times where I had part-time jobs working in an unbelieving environment, which most of you have, or perhaps there were times where I would have family gatherings with extended relatives, uh, you know, cousins or aunts and uncles that, that didn't know Christ as Savior. But by and large, I mean, my parents, I have three brothers, they're all saved, their spouses are saved. Like, we have a family gathering at Thanksgiving. We pray around the table. Everybody knows Jesus is their Savior. So, in, in a, yeah, and, and, and Rick keeps saying amen. I, I need to say amen, too. And that's a blessing. I'm not, I'm not downplaying that at all. I am so, 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 so thankful for that. Okay? But, when I look at this, and I read this passage, and when I was taught this passage... It was more or less, I learned this passage not so much from personal experience, but from others telling me what the world was going to be like when I got into the world. Does that make sense? And so the preparation part of going out into the world was, don't be surprised that the world hates you. Because they hated Jesus. So don't be surprised. And so I approached the world... Similar to, if you ever played, like when you were a little kid, you ever play a game Gauntlet, where you have like two lines of people on either side, and then there's people in the middle, and they have to run down the middle, and you get the little softballs, or sometimes you get the hardballs, you whip them at the kids, and the whole point is to get from one side to the other and not get hit. Okay, I kind of approached the world similar to like, okay, I'm going into the Gauntlet, and it's going to get... Peppered. I'm going to get boo, 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 boo. And then I get into the world, maybe from an employment standpoint or a friendship or neighbors, you know, get my own house or whatever. And they don't hate me. I thought you were going to hate me. I thought the world hated Jesus, so they, they're going to hate me. And, 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 and I'm honest when I say, working through this passage this week, those are some of the thoughts coming through my brain. Like, I mean, for every time that maybe I was made fun of for my conviction, or, or perhaps there was, there was difficulties, there's also some unsaved people that have been really, really nice you know, there, there's a, a funeral home here in the area that, that I 
you know, have been able to build a friendship with, and they ask me to do funerals for them pretty often when, when the family doesn't have someone to come do the funeral and they're not affiliated with any particular church, but they want someone to officiate it. So I do. I do like, I don't know, five, six, seven, maybe funerals a year. And these people, the, these families that I officiate funerals for, I, I ask them ahead of time. I say, no, I'm a Christian minister. At this service, I want to be able to share the hope that comes from Jesus Christ. Amen. I, I want to share how he died on the cross, but, but more than just died, I want to share that he rose from the dead and that actually through him, we can have hope. Can I do that? No one has ever said no. I share that because maybe some of you have the former experience of, I know what it likes to be hated by the world. But I think there may be some of you, when you read this and you say, really? In the end, though, there's something that we all have to do. And that's this. We have God's word. And our experience is not truth. God's word is truth. So here's what we do. We take our experience and we filter it through God's truth. Okay, we have to do that. What does God's word say? Because every one of our experiences goes through an interpretive grid. Like I look at whatever it is that goes on through a grid. And that grid is marked by sin. I'm a sinner. I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. So even if I see and hear things accurately, I might not interpret them accurately. But what the Bible does is it gives me truth through which I interpret all of life's circumstances, and you should too. So that's what we're going to do. What does Jesus say when he's talking about, do not be surprised if the world hates you? Okay? All right. So, point number one. As Christians... You should expect opposition from the unbelieving world. As Christians, you should expect opposition from the unbelieving world. Okay. Do not be surprised if the world hates you. So as Christians, we should expect opposition, even hatred, because Christ faced opposition. That's the first really sub-point here. We expect opposition. Why? Because Christ faced opposition. In the grammar here, in the Greek, and we're not going to get into the weeds, but in the grammar, there, it's unmistakably clear. Like, beginning of verse 18, it's a conditional clause, which just simply means it's an if-then. If this happens, then this. But in the Greek, it's more than just, eh, this might happen. It's if this will happen, and it will, then this also happens. So when it's saying here, verse 18, if the world hates you, and it will, you know that it's hated me before it hated you. As long as Christians live among unbelievers, they will be opposed. And, and the rest of the, the grammar here in this passage, there's certain tenses of words that speak to the reality, and, and frankly, if I could put it this way, the permanent nature of this. Like the world, this system that's morally opposed to God is going to be opposed to you. Why? Well, because it was opposed to Christ. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. And other writers here in the New Testament say the same thing. First Timothy 3, or 2 Timothy 3, 12. All who desire to live a godly life will face persecution. Philippians 1.29, it's been granted to the Christian not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for him. 1 Thessalonians 3.3-4, don't be moved by the afflictions that we experience. Why? Because we were destined for this. 1 Peter 4.12-13, don't be surprised at the fiery trial that comes upon you. And then really the end of chapter 16 in John. Verse 33, these things I've spoken to you so that in me you have peace. In the world you have tribulation. 
This is the reality. Jesus paints a realistic picture of what a follower of Christ should expect. Following Jesus always costs something. Always. Now, we ask the question, okay, so the world hates you, but let's dig a little bit deeper into that. Okay? Why? Well, they hated Christ first. Second of all, because Christ changes his followers and actually brings them out of the world. Look at verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Jesus has called his followers out of the world. That's not a physical removal out of the world. John 17 talks about that further. But followers of Jesus Christ are different when they're chosen to be saved, they are changed. And the unbelieving world that they are changed from doesn't always like that change. That change is uncomfortable for them. And the world and their opposition, really, it comes against the Christian, not primarily for the Christian's actions, but because of their own theology. Now, stay with me here. This is a little deep, but I do believe it's from the text. The, world that, the word that's used over and over again in this passage, world, it's really important that we understand what it is that, that, that Jesus is saying here. Don't be surprised if the world hates you. You're in the world. What is he talking about? Well, I think, first of all, there's an immediate context, but then there's also a greater context. So what I want to do is I want to look at these verses and look at the immediate context in how Jesus describes the world. Okay? So, for example... Verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they, that's the world, persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Look down at verse 21. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake. Wait a second. What does that mean? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 25. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. Wait a second. Their law? I thought we were talking about the world here. We are. Jesus is. Look at verse 1 of chapter 16. These things I've spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering a service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. When Jesus is talking about the world here to the disciples, the immediate context is a religious community. Because he's talking about the world doing something they believe to be right, but they're doing something right according to their law, which is the law of Moses. Because Jesus quotes the Old Testament there. When he says that they're going to be kicking them out of the synagogue. When he says they're going to be killing you, and even at times believing they are doing something for me or for God. When Jesus is talking about the word world here to the disciples, he's talking about the unbelieving Jews who would ultimately kill him. This was a religious context that he's talking about. But again, using the word world, we can't narrowly define it so that how could he use the word world and then only just talk about one subset of people? And this is where we have to take into consideration that John is writing these things for our benefit as well. He wrote the gospel of John, his gospel, after the fall of Rome. I'm sorry, after the fall of Jerusalem. After Nero. 
He's writing these things to both Jews and Gentiles who would have been in the midst of persecution for their faith. They're reading this and they say, I mean, they have names and faces of people who had been killed. In fact, as John is writing this, pretty much all of the disciples except him have died because the world hated them and put them to death. So what is he saying here? He's saying that the world here is not just the out there, but it can actually be the in here as it relates to those Jewish leaders who were rejecting the authority of Jesus Christ. Say, why were they so opposed to Jesus? Well, our choir sang about it. I am not my own. Jesus testified that the world hated him in John 7, 7. They hated him because he testified that their deeds were evil. Because when Jesus comes, he's coming into a situation, frankly, that their worship environment in John 15 and 16 is probably closer to the book of Malachi than it is the epistles. What I mean by that is they're still underneath the law here. They're still bringing sacrifices to the temple. They're still honoring the code of Moses. They're still doing all of these things. We don't have the church age here. Now Jesus comes and he says, I am the fulfillment of the law. What you read, I'm embodying this. And those religious leaders rejected that. Because Jesus, at the end of the day, was making himself to be God. Because he was and so this issue of the world hating them was a theological issue, primarily. But as we go forward, we also see it extending beyond just Jerusalem. We extend it, really, we see it extended to the scope of Christianity. Don't be surprised if the world hates you. These individuals, verse 2 of chapter 16, were sincere in their beliefs, but they were sincerely wrong. God held them responsible for what had been revealed to them. It says in John 15, verse 21, But all of these things they do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have their sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. Now imagine the religious community hearing that from Jesus. If you hate me, you hate God, the Father. Verse 24, if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my Father as well. Their response to Jesus revealed what they actually knew about God. And as a result, when they say they worshipped him, they really didn't. Because if they truly worshipped God, they would have recognized Jesus as God. This was the fundamental opposition that the disciples would have experienced. Because they were followers of Jesus Christ. And with that came an allegiance to him. Now, you say, okay, I'm trying to process all this. What is this going to look like in our lives? Maybe if I can use a point of application. And for some of you, this may hit especially close to home because you have lived this out. Some of you in your conversion testimonies, when you came to Christ, you know, back at the beginning, how I said three people got baptized last week and we're all clapping. When you shared your conversion testimony with your family, or your friends, there was no celebration. Maybe they were upset. Maybe you were part of a religious tradition or traditions that go back multiple generations. When you got saved, you're breaking from that tradition. Don't you know mom and dad and grandparents and great-grandparents? They believed all this. You're breaking away? 
This is our culture. This is who we are. To be fill in the name of perhaps even ethnicity is to believe this way. You're turning your back on that? What, now you think that you get religious? You're right and we've been wrong all along? What are you saying about them? What are you saying about... You're going to turn your back on your family? That's hard. Some of you have lived that. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when we come here, may we appreciate and give thanks for the sacrifices that some have made for Jesus Christ at the onset of their faith. Because not all of us have had to make that sacrifice. I certainly haven't. I mean, from the standpoint of, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. It costs me my life. I am not my own. But I had parents that celebrated. I had a church that was happy when I got baptized. I wasn't asked to leave my home like some of you were. What Jesus is doing, really, in this passage, he's preparing his disciples for opposition so that they might be prepared to persevere when the opposition comes. Okay? Verse 1 of chapter 16. These things I've spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. We also see this in verse 4a. These things I've spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. Jesus did not want the disciples to be surprised when difficulties came from the world, when the distinctions of not being of the world started to create difficulties. And the world responded to it. I think of an individual in church history. His name's Thomas Cranmer, often called the father of the English Reformation. He wrote something called the Book of, the Common, Book of Common Prayer. Okay. Uh, Thomas Cranmer uh, was a preacher of the gospel, especially Reformation doctrine. And what that simply means is salvation is not by the church. Salvation is not by works, but salvation is by grace through faith. But the Bible can be trusted and reliable and needs to be in the hands of the people so that they can read it and they can put their faith not in a system but in Christ alone. Amen. And so he preached and uh, basically the Church of England uh, took some real issues with this to where they imprisoned him. And during the imprisonment, he actually recanted those things and affirmed what he at one point in time taught which was salvation was by faith in a system. Salvation was by works. He recanted. And after he recanted, Mary I, Queen Mary I, actually said, sorry, too late. You're going to die anyways. And so in his last sermon, as he's preaching, he recants the recantations. And he apologizes. And they took him from that pulpit and they burnt him at the stake. And do you know what they did while he burnt at the stake? They preached a sermon. Not all persecution, not all martyrdom is at the hands of those who are like atheistic, communistic, Marxist. Much of history actually has persecution at the hands of those who believe they are doing a service to God himself. If the world hates you. So Jesus points out this dichotomy between the love that's enjoyed in the church and the hatred that they may experience in the world. This is unsettling, isn't it? In two weeks, we're going to be talking a little bit more about this in regards to the future. But what I want to do here with the time that remains is I want to look at what has already been taught and how we ought to respond to this. Because our response to this is just as important. So with my first point, as I said... As Christians, you should expect opposition because... The world will oppose you. But secondly, 
Knowing that Christians will face opposition from the unbelieving world should spur us to greater love among one another. Let me say that again. Knowing that Christians will face opposition to varying degrees to be sure. But knowing Christians will inevitably face opposition from the unbelieving world should spur us to greater love for other believers. Meaning, if that's the way the world responds, how should the church respond internally? Like, if you know the world is going to oppose believers, then when the believers come together, how should they treat each other? It shouldn't look like the world. It should look like loving one another. Now, stay with me, because... This is where the Holy Spirit has done some big work in my life and probably will continue to do as much to do uh, in my life continuing. But, but just stay with me. Consider this immediate context, okay? So they've just been commanded to love each other. And the ultimate cost of discipleship really is the same for all of us. But like I said before, the immediate cost is higher for others. And so Jesus is preparing the disciples He's saying, I'm telling you this. This is going to happen. They hate me. So if they hate you, know that they hated me. I'm telling you this so that you will be prepared, so that you will not fall. And not several hours later, what happens? They fall. They fall. How would they need love from each other given how badly they were about to fail? Now, indulge me for a moment. I don't mean to be silly, certainly in this context, but I want you to imagine for a moment that 21st century technology existed in this context. What do you mean? Okay. So imagine the swarm of phones that would be recording the different events as Peter is confronted by a little girl outside a fire. And imagine him cursing, I don't know the man, he says when he's asked about Jesus. And they got it on video. Can you believe this? So the comments, oh my word, he's a follower of Jesus. He's, he's one of the main disciples. He's, he denied the faith. Look at the language he's using. And then in the comments section, someone else uploads another video. Look what he did in the garden. Here's, here's Peter wielding some sword, hacking a guy's ear off. Colossal fail. In our culture, Peter's done. He's canceled. It's preserved. Which... As silly as using kind of 21st century tech as an example, all of those things were inscripturated. So, like, as Peter was one of the early church fathers, and as the gospel accounts were circulating among the churches, those other saints were reading about it. They knew Peter failed, they knew the disciples failed. Did all of these failures negate what Christ demonstrated for the disciples back in John 13? Let's look back in John 13. Earlier in the evening, John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The end of what? Certainly the end of the evening. So what does Jesus do? Knowing the failure that they were about to embark on. 
washes their feet. He sees someone who's in a failure. He sees someone who is part of the believing community. He sees someone who's about to do something that probably they would regret for the rest of their lives and that the rest of us in the body of Christ would remember. And he prays for them in the garden, to be sure, but he also says, that's someone who needs their feet washed. Body of Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, this is how we must be distinct from the world because the world hates but the body of Christ must love the act of service stands in stark contrast to how often and I'm guilty of this as well how often other Christians can treat other Christians when they fail one commentator put it this way often Christians are the best at shooting their wounded it is easy to evaluate each other before we love each other. And there may be people that come to your minds, even part of this body, that it is difficult to love because of whatever fills your mind about them, their behavior, their past, their present. They're part of the believing body, and you are too. God has called you to love. It's easy to love those who are just like you. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read two passages here. Matthew 5, then Romans 12. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. This is Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even Gentiles do the same? Therefore you're to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. There's even a greater degree of love that God has called us. Even beyond just the body of Christ. That even extends to the unbelieving world. Even to those who may hate us. Let's look at Romans chapter 12. This is a little bit longer of a passage. But I want you to notice the flow of thought where Paul is talking about love within the body, but then how that naturally extends to love outside the body. Verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Certainly we see love for one another there, right? Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible... So far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will heap 
burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There's a certain irony here. Christians are to be known by their love, while the world is known often by its hatred. Jesus makes it clear that to follow him, to submit to his authority, and have him be the Lord of your life, will inevitably result in opposition, sometimes even hatred from our unbelieving world. But this is not how Christians should be treating one another, nor is it how Christians should be treating the unbelieving world that opposes them and hates them. If you read John chapter 15, don't be surprised that the world hates you. And your response is anger, <sighs> disdain, disgust. You're responding more like the world than you are like Jesus. Let me take that a step further. I want to be gracious. If the information and the media content that you digest on a daily basis creates more anger than love, you're acting more like the world than you are God. Right now, we are in a time, especially in our country, that we want to punch back. And anger I can put it this way, is all the rage. This is not how God would have us read John 15. We must not act like the world, even when we are being hated by the world. Why? 1 Timothy chapter 1 Verses 12 through 17. We're going to finish there. This is great. This is great. First Timothy 1. Let's look there. Verse 12. Paul's writing to Timothy here. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. We will experience difficulty. And you know what? Christians experienced difficulty at the hands of Saul of Tarsus. Yet what did God do? God saved him. God changed him. It's natural to live in a defensive posture when we're told we're going into a world that is going to hate us. We naturally kind of think about running the gauntlet. How are we going to get hit? How many times am I going to get hit? How much longer is God going to allow this to happen? And as a Christian, it's easy to take this posture. All believers are actively opposing your faith with all of their energy, all the times, and it can create or lead itself to a level of resentment. And then it carries over even into the church and how we treat one another. We must realize that we should not be hoping or longing for the defeat of those who hate us. We should be praying for their conversion. Amen. Vengeance is God's. He will repay. Amen. Listen, we are not called to a Christianity that sympathizes more with Peter wielding a sword and hacking off an ear. No. We want them to join us. Because that's what we were. 
Do you believe that? I mean, the most vile thing that frustrates you? Do you really believe 1 Timothy 1.15? I struggle with that. I just want to go away. Tired. Angry. But God has called us to love. There's going to be a song that we sing here right at the end. Go to the world for the sake of his name. Two verses just as we sing it, maybe this will go through your brain. Love the unloved for the sake of his name. And then, fourth verse. I'm not a big crier, but I kind of tear up towards the end, this last verse. Some for whose souls we pray will share our joy that day, joining our song for the sake of his name. This is countercultural to much, even much of our Christianity. We must love as Christ has commanded us to love. One with another and with a believe, unbelieving world that often hates us. Okay? Pray for one another in this. Because nowadays we know a lot more about what we're thinking than we ever have before. And so it's easier perhaps to evaluate. But pray for one another. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time. Lord, I am immensely convicted. Thank you so much for Jesus, who set the example, washing the disciples' feet, not simply so that we could love Jesus more, but so that we could serve one another. Father, perhaps you've brought to mind during this time people, even within our midst, where we need to wash their feet, not literally, but from a love standpoint. And God, protect us Protect us from falling. Help us to persevere. And Lord, may your church be built by former enemies of the cross. Just like we, we, what we were. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.